Matthew chapter 18. Last week, as I mentioned, um, I tried to preach the sermon that I had prepared last week and couldn't quite squeeze it down into under an hour and a half. So I decided to split it up. And so uh, if you're here this week and you weren't here last week, um, this is a part two message. Um, it might benefit you to go back and listen to last week's message. But just really quickly, last week I covered the first kind of discipline. And the, the title of this sermon is The Gift of Discipline. And that first kind of discipline is what I call, uh, or, well, what's called formative, but I like to call it transformative discipline. And like I said last week, a lot of times when we hear the word discipline, we immediately jump to the word punishment. Like if there's going to be some kind of discipline, then there has to be some kind of punishment involved. But formative discipline is about teaching you what is right. It's, it's not about punishment at all. It's about helping you to understand and see what is right. And we talked about how the majority of what we do in a church is formative discipline. You coming and listening to a sermon on Sunday morning is formative discipline. You're hearing what the Word of God says. You're looking at your life, hopefully. And you're looking in the mirror of the Word and going, this is places where my life and the Word don't line up, so I need to change. Right? I need to confess and repent and then obey what the Word says. But the reality is, there are times in which we need the second kind of discipline. And the second kind of discipline is corrective discipline. And even if, and I'm not saying this is the right statistic, but even if 99% of the time were spent in formative discipline, there would still be that 1%. There's still that time that we need to go to the person and we need to address them and we need to confront them in a restorative kind of way. This happens a lot. I think it's easy. I've been making the analogy with discipline and parenting because it, those two things just go together so well. And this happens a lot with children, right? So say you're leaving church today and, and you're standing there talking to someone and your child runs out into the middle of the street. Okay, that's not a time for formative discipline. That's not a time for you to stand there and say, son, you know, cars go really fast and bones break even faster. So what you really should do is come away from the center line, right? No, that, that's a time when you grab your kid and say, get out of the road, right? That, that is a moment in which corrective discipline is needed because there is immediate danger, I mentioned last week, though, a lot of times what we do is we take a lot of what should be formative discipline and we make it corrective discipline. And the dangers I talked about last week, and again, I would encourage you to go back and listen, of making your entire parenting structure, your entire discipling structure, if you are making disciples, if everything or the majority is corrective, then there's a big danger in that where you will change the outward appearance. You will have basically behavioralism, right? You just change the behavior, but you never change the heart. And so we see here in this passage that Jesus gives us a process and he lays it out here in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 of what this corrective or restorative discipline 
should look like. We're not just left to guess, right? It's not like Jesus said, hey, hey, do this, but, you know, it's up to you how you do it. No, he, he lays it out for us. He gives us what we need to do. So let's look there in verse 15. It says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, Jesus lays out this process for dealing with a brother that has sinned against you. Now, let's stop for a minute because it's easy to, to, to go right past this. And I've heard so many people want to use these verses to do something other than what Jesus is saying to do in this passage, right? There's an important detail. With a brother that sins against you. Right? This is, this is not a license for you to try to deal with all of your brother's sins. These are instructions for you to deal with your brother when he sins against you. Right? This is not a text that busybodies should use in the church who think it's their job to go around and point out and correct everyone's sins in their life in every single detail. Right? That's not what he's talking about here. But this is a passage that those same people will often use to justify their behavior. I would argue their sinful behavior. The sin that they're observing and that they're seeing happening is not happening to them, yet they feel compelled to go and correct that person, or they want to call a pastor or elder and say, hey, you should really talk to so-and-so. I saw him doing this. But understand the context of this chapter is about sin committed against you. And when that sin happens in verse 15, and if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So the first step that we see in dealing with a brother sinning against you is to go privately and try to correct the behavior. Now, if you listen to the world, the world will tell you to just mind your own business. Right? Just leave it alone. Live and let live. Just be tolerant. That we shouldn't say anything to the person who's regularly offending us. But the problem is that if a person, if a, if a brother or sister sins against you, there's a couple problems. One, chances are they're sinning against others. And you're allowing that person to carry on and sin against you personally, and it's hurting them because they are sinning. And chances are, again, they're hurting others with that same sin. 
But ultimately, it's damaging to the name of Christ. When brothers and sisters are sinning against one another, we look just like the world, folks. We look no different. So we're damaging the name of Christ. So Jesus tells us in that situation, you go and show him his fault. You go and show him or her their fault alone. You don't call them out in front of everybody. You don't run around and tell everybody about it. You go directly to the person and you begin to speak truth to them. Again, I want to remind you when we talked about this earlier in the series is that there's many things that we should overlook. There are many times in which there are sins that are done against us that we have to be able to love them enough to overlook them, especially immature believers, right? Because all of us have had that bad day when we've just been dumped on and dumped on and dumped on and then somebody comes up to us and we respond quickly or hastily Right? I can't believe they spoke to me that way. Right? We, we, should, we should be able to be considered. This is not a pattern. This just happened one time. Maybe, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe it's not personal. I tell people all the time when the reaction doesn't equal the action, there's something else going on. Right? This is also true of young or immature believers. People who are young in the faith who... Sometimes they don't even realize what they're doing or saying yet. As a person that loves them, we should be able to overlook them. And again, this is the the same thing is true of a child. I'm not going to get upset with a two-year-old that poops their pants. Because that's what two-year-olds do. But if you're doing it at 10, we're going to have a problem, right? The, The problem is some of you don't come to Christ until you're 40, And you're a babe in Christ. And we we look at you as a 40-year-old and think you should know better. And yet you've spent no time in the Word. You've never been discipled by anybody. Why would you know better? Right? We, We have to be able to be patient with those that are immature or young in the faith. But if something happens again and again and again, again, even even as an immature believer... If it happens over and over and there's a pattern, then you need to go and address it privately. I grew up in a church that taught a certain doctrine and a a certain way of viewing theology. And the problem wasn't the view so much. It was that the view came with a very dogmatic, dogmatic attitude that everyone else was wrong. If they didn't hold the view I held, then they were wrong, right? So we did a lot of corrective discipline at that church, right? And literally, guys, today I cringe when I remember myself saying things. Like there were times when I was with that group of people that I would say, well, those, those people don't believe like us. They don't They don't." hold the same theology the same, the same way we hold it, I don't even know if those people are Christians. I used to think that we had taken a secondary thing and elevated it to a primary thing. But 
As I had come away from that, I began working with other churches and, and doing other things. And I remember arguing with a lot of people about that particular topic. And, and, and you know, I found myself, I actually enjoyed arguing about it. And maybe you grew up in a church where they taught you to enjoy arguing about those things. It was almost like, you know, the debate team, right? Who, who makes it on the debate team? We're going to call it apologetics, but it's a debate team, right? It's like we got this special club. And you can come on Thursday nights and we'll teach you how to argue against all these people who are wrong. Because we're right. But as I look back on my life, and I look at that period of time, all of that arguing that went on, I was never convinced to change. And what I've come to realize is now, I hadn't taken a secondary thing and made it primary. What I had done was I had made an idol out of certainty. And the way I worshipped certainty was by telling everyone else that I was certain that they were wrong and I was right. You see, I stopped worshiping God. This, this is far worse than taking a secondary thing and making it primary. I'm no longer worshiping God anymore. I'm worshiping the idol of certainty. But I remember a pastor calling me up, saying, hey, let, let's go have lunch. And we went and had lunch. And we sat down, and he, he challenged me without saying, you're absolutely wrong, and you need to change. He just questioned some of the things, some of the interpretations of the scriptures that I was using. And, and he began to show me some things about the context of, of which pieces of scriptures were being used and, and how they fit into the chapter as a whole and how they fit into the book as a whole. And listen, I mean, still to this day, this pastor made a big impact on me because you, if you've sat here for very long, you've heard me say that. Pay attention to what comes before it, what comes after it. Pay attention to the overall story of the book that you're reading, right? And, and so he, he would do that, and he would just very lovingly, he never said, hey, you're wrong, and your, your beliefs are stupid. <laughs> um, he, he just kind of challenged me to really get into the word and to stop arguing as much and just read the word. And the reality is I didn't change right away. A after me that meeting, I didn't suddenly like, oh, the light came on and I'm wrong and you're right. But I also noticed that wasn't his goal. His goal wasn't to prove that he was right and that I was wrong. And man, that made all the difference in the world when it came to listening to him. His goal wasn't about changing the way I viewed eschatology or theology and all that kind of stuff. His goal was to get me to become a Christian that loved his neighbor, even if that neighbor did not believe everything exactly the way I did. And throughout Scripture, Christians are called to be People of unity, not people of division. And especially over secondary issues. Right? There are certain things that we do fight for. And, and we hold on to them. But, you know, we, as, as I began to, to learn, that wasn't one of them. 
And I realized that though this brother coming to me and correcting me and challenging me privately, right? He didn't call me out in a group of pastors or a group of people. He came and, and just said, hey, let's sit down and have lunch. I can look back and say that's the day when I began to think differently about doctrine. And I began to change and grow, which is the goal of a disciple. Changing and growing, not arguing, changing and growing. And again, I've had many forum type discussions with lots of people. And those, th- those kind of times, it just made me dig deeper and want to consider changing. But him coming to me, or not changing, and him coming to me privately allowed me the, the, the space to change. But we have to be prepared, prepared for the fact that people might not change in that moment. This is what we often hope for, right? We, we hope that when we go to them privately, they'll just be like, yes, I get it. I see what you're saying. They're going to start you know, crying and, and confess and repent. And I've realized the errors of my ways. Now I'm sorry. And that's happened sometimes. Don't get me wrong, it can happen. But it doesn't always happen. But we don't do it for that. Our job is just to be faithful. To, to do what God tells us to do. And then trust him with the results. Right? We trust him with our salvation. I hope we trust him with our sanctification. I hope we also trust him with corrective discipline. It's not our job to sit there and preach to them and try to convince them until they finally submit and finally go, okay, I was wrong. It's our job to point out the sin and how they sinned against us. That's what the text tells us to do. And in this way, we see that discipline, again, is God's gift to the church. He he wants us to love each other enough that when someone sins against us, we're willing to go and do the hard thing, right? Because it's easy for us sometimes to just not talk about it. But he wants us to take that step. So, that, so what happens if, if that person then continues to do that same thing over and over against you, he gives us the next step. He tells us the next step is to take one or two others along with us. Now, a little word of caution or maybe advice in this area. Take one or two people that are advocates for your friend. When I've seen this go badly, and where I've seen this go wrong, is when it becomes a mob mentality, and we get two or three of our friends who are on our side, and then we go jump the guy, theologically. Right? It's much more helpful and productive if you take someone who's advocating for your friend at at least at the very least someone who is neutral in the situation 
But even better if it's someone who can advocate so that that person, you know, just say they're in a small group and you're in a different small group. Call his small group leader and say, hey, you know a lot more about him. Would you come with me? I've tried to address this. He didn't respond. But maybe there's some background. Maybe there's some stuff you can help with. Maybe, maybe you've seen it as well, and we can talk about that. Maybe he didn't do it directly to you, but you've seen him do it. He's an advocate. Call him and say, come, come with me. We, we want the person to feel as though they have someone there who is advocating for them. And again, this runs contrary to what the world tells us to do, because after that first step, if we go to them privately and they don't change, the world... It tells us to do something different, right? Go tell everyone. Anybody that will listen to you. Your spouse, you tell your friends, everybody in the church. And again, what's the goal of that? It's to get people on your side. And that's not promoting unity. That's promoting division. And God says, if, if he doesn't listen, take one or two along with you. Now, this is something that as a pastor and as an elder, I've had the joy and the honor of being involved in multiple times. Being that neutral person or that advocate for the person. And again, there's been so many times that I've seen this happen, and it's a beautiful thing. It ends with the person realizing their sin and confessing that sin and, and just genuine brokenness and genuine repentance. But again... Not always. And so Jesus gives us what to do when that doesn't work. Step three, go and tell the church. This is a matter that after we have talked to them privately, and after a couple of people talk to them, then we tell it to the church. Now you might say, why, why would we do that? Why would Jesus want us to do that? Why, why would he want us to embarrass these people publicly? God, that is so unloving, Jesus. But the reality is, because if we don't, they're usually going to continue in the sin, which can only bring further grief and misery. And not only to them, but that they're going to inflict harm on others too. As they continue to practice the sin and there's damage that's going to happen to other people and ultimately they're going to damage the witness of Christ and that local church. I remember when I was younger in church. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this concept, but every church has a cool church. You ever been a part of a cool church? I was a part of this really small country church and all of a sudden it became the cool church. And what I mean by that is all the political leaders showed up and they were all of a sudden at this church. All the wealthy business leaders showed up and they were at this church. And, and I don't know if there's like, you know, a secret lottery that happens somewhere and they just pull out a name and say, okay, this is going to be the cool church for a while. But for whatever reason, our, the church I grew up in got called and they became the cool church. That's where everybody that was anybody went to church. And, and we had this influx of people and primarily business type people and they started coming in and it went, it really became a networking opportunity for them. It stopped really being a church and it was more about making business contacts. And, and how do I get this person to solicit my business and, you know, vice versa. And 
And this guy came into the church and he got some of those people to invest in a plan as a developer. And you know, these are his friends. These are his church people. And he's like, I want to get you in on the ground floor, guys. I want to bless you guys. As you might can imagine, what happens next is it falls through. The deal didn't go the way it was supposed to go, but everybody lost their money. Now, as a church, you know, the, the group of people came to the leadership and said, hey, this is what happened, and we need to deal with this. But they didn't deal with it. And you know what happened? He went to the next cool church, and he did the exact same thing again. See, this is one of the dangers of stopping discipline before the church stage. And I want to be perfectly honest and transparent with you. This has been a mistake that I have made over the last 15 years at Church on the Way. What I thought I was doing was sparing the person. But in reality, looking back, now seeing a wake of damage that was caused, after the fact, I realized I wasn't really helping that person. Or the group of people... And, and not only was I, wasn't, that I wasn't helping them, but I inadvertently caused damage in other people's lives because I stopped the process of discipline too soon. And I see this happen with some friends' churches is that a pastor would be caught doing something inappropriate. And rather than dealing with it, they just ask him to resign. And they thought they were sparing the church the embarrassment. They were sparing the pastor the embarrassment of the shame of what he had been caught doing. But because it was a resignation, because he left on good terms, he just went two cities away, found another church, and did the exact same thing. The pastor ended up in jail for what he did. And the people that he hurt... I think about how, how much of that could have been stopped if discipline hadn't been stopped before the church stage. Stopping discipline prematurely often leads to greater harm. So what does Jesus say we should do if that person still won't repent? That the sin is too serious to overlook. If we refuse, if he refuses to, to listen, you tell it to the church in most situations, you know, I've seen this kind of step where the issue is brought to the pastors and the elders of the church leaders, and they've tried to intercede and, and even take one extra step to, to, to push just to really make sure that, that we've done everything that can be done before this last step. But we can't stop prematurely on that last step. So we bring it to the church, and if he still doesn't change... Because that happens, right? Now what Jesus doesn't, again, he doesn't leave us to guess. He doesn't, you know, make us wonder like, oh, what should we do next? He says, treat him as a pagan or a Gentile, as a tax collector, right? And when he says Gentile, he means treat him as an unbeliever. Now, this is not us making a judgment against his salvation. We're not saying he's an unbeliever. We're saying, treat them as such. And it's important that we understand because the world will often say, you know, we, we shouldn't be judging lest we be judged. Right? And they love to misquote that scripture. 
and say the church has no right to judge. But what we're doing is we're saying that you are not to be a part. If you're in leadership, you're not to be in leadership. You're to be set apart from us and away from us. And again, the hope there is restorative. It's not about punishment. It's about trying to get this brother to see the sin and to see the pain that he's causing, not only to himself, but to others, and to come back. And the only way we can do that is to pull you away and out of what you're involved in and allow you to feel that so that maybe, hopefully, you'll come to your senses. Now, this is something that happens a lot in marriages inside the church that I see. We see people who are taking steps toward adulterous, adulterous relationships or, or they're seeking a divorce and they don't really have biblical grounds for a divorce. And you know, a lot of us will say, we'll, we'll just stay out of that, right? We'll see it, but we'll just stay out of that. And, and we won't say anything, yet the damage that causes to the kids who are left struggling between these two sets of parents. It, it's important that we step up as a church because we send the message that things like marriage vows, they don't mean anything. That the people are free to leave their families and commit adultery. I mean, this is one of the reasons why when you look at the church, it's the exact same percentage of divorce as the world. This, is, this would be a sobering warning for us. Not, not only to the person that is being set apart from the church to, to be set outside of the church, but another benefit of church discipline in doing this is that it serves as a sobering warning for those who are still sitting inside the church. And they may not have gotten to the point of acting yet on the thoughts, but they had already been thinking the thoughts. Some of you may be thinking these thoughts already this morning. For the man who sought after another woman and is, you know, in the process of trying to leave his wife. And we set that person apart from us and say, no longer are you a part of the church. Every single man sitting in the room that's been thinking and, and maybe looking at that secretary a little too long. Or, or entertaining thoughts that they shouldn't be entertaining. He's reminded of the path that he's going down and where it leads. Destruction. And that's... That's one of the other side benefits and, and the sobering warning it should serve us. And finally, it sends a message to the world that we take God seriously. That we're unwilling to demean his holiness. Mark Dever writes this in Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Discipline is simple obedience to God and simple confession that we need help. We cannot live the Christian life alone. Our purpose in church discipline is positive for the individual discipline for other Christians as they see the real danger of sin for the health of the church as a whole and for the corporate witness of the church to those outside. Most of all, our holiness is to reflect the holiness of God. It should mean something to be a member of the church, not for our pride's sake, but for God's namesake. Biblical church discipline is a mark of a healthy church. So we have a benefit not only to the unrepentant sinner that he might see his sin and come, come to see his sin, but we have the benefit of people in the church seeing the danger and the seriousness of sin 
and what it can cause. But we also have the benefit of the world seeing that we take sin seriously. But I want you to notice in this chapter, because again, this is where people love to take verses out of context. This isn't where church discipline stops. This isn't how the chapter ends. Peter asks this question, well, you know, how many times do we forgive? And so bookended here are two descriptions of love that the Father has for us. We're bookend at the beginning of the story of the story or the parable of the hundred sheep and of a father who's willing to go after the one. But we're also bookended on the other end with this parable about forgiving as God has forgiven us. Because the question ultimately comes up, what do we do when that person has been set apart from the church, finally confesses of their sin and repents and wants to come back? What do we do? Do we accept them back in or do we not? And so Jesus tells us this parable and he, he talks about the unmerciful servant who wants all of his wrongs forgiven, but he won't forgive another. And this again, this is the danger for us that the longer we walk with Christ and the danger is because we begin to disconnect and forget and not realize how much we have been forgiven of. And how much of sinners we are to the point that sometimes we convince ourselves that maybe we don't even sin anymore. That we don't struggle with pride, self-reliance, arrogance, selfishness, and all those other things like idolatry. And when we do, the danger then becomes to, to become like the unforgiving servant in this parable. And act like the older brother did in the parable of the two lost sons we talked about a couple weeks ago and we get angry when God extends forgiveness to those who have messed up publicly in just embarrassing ways and yet God offers and extends forgiveness to them and so we withhold forgiveness to them and we begin to sit in judgment of them Jesus when asked how many times do I forgive seven right because that's the number of wholeness. It's an important number in the Bible. And you know, that's how many times that I should for, forgive. We should, we should let them do it seven times. And then after that, you can't come back in here anymore. To which Jesus responds, 77 times. Not so that on the 78th time, they can't come back in, right? But he's basically saying, you just keep on forgiving. Why? Why? Because your father keeps forgiving you every single day. And because he keeps forgiving, you keep forgiving those people in your life. And this is something that, again, it's, it's hard for us the longer that we walk with Christ. Sometimes because we tend to get disconnected and forget our sinfulness or how long it took God to get some of that sinfulness out of our lives. And so we get really impatient with young believers. And it's like, you know what, what if you, if you mess up one more time this week? And again, we probably don't say it right, but we're thinking it. If this guy messes up, I'm not wasting any more of my time or dis ah, discipling him. I want to say disciplining him, but discipling him. If he blows me off, if he doesn't show up one more time to small group, that's it. I'm writing him off. I'm not going to spend any more of my time 
discipling him. Why should I invest? Why should I pour my life, my life out into this guy? He doesn't even appreciate it. See, that's called pride. Oh, we should run to God and confess and repent. Right? Because we tend to write off people far too quickly. And one of the things that I love about the Father is that he doesn't write us off. He just keeps pursuing, he keeps loving, and he keeps forgiving. I don't deserve that. I don't know about you, but I am fully aware of my sinfulness. I'm fully aware of just how much I need a Savior every day of my life. And it's with that attitude that makes me not ever want to turn away from one of his children. So the next time you quote verses 15 through 19, remember the context of this chapter. The context of this chapter is about the people who turn away from God's little ones. And he concludes this chapter by talking about those of us who have been forgiven of so much. 10,000 was, was like the biggest number that they had, the biggest single word number that they had. Nowadays, it would be like trillions of dollars. That's how much this guy was forgiven. And he wasn't willing to forgive a guy for 100 days wages. Millions, trillions versus 100 days wages. And as we approach discipline, we need to remember the four G's. And I'm going to close with this, and we'll put this up on the screen for you. You might be asking, what are the four G's? And the, the four G's are rooted in the gospel. One, we should be glorifying God. Two, we should get the log out of our own eye first. And we should go and gently restore people. Key word there is gently. When we're reminded of the sinfulness that we are forgiven of daily, not one time 10 years ago, but every single day. And if you're not, then you're the least likely to gently restore. You may tell people you're all about restoring, but it's not gently. It isn't with patience and long-suffering, promoting the unity of the church. Instead, it's about division. It's about you being right and them being wrong and your desire to prove that. But when you remember what you've been forgiven of, you approach discipline with a spirit of gentle restoration. And because of the gospel, the final one, you go and be reconciled. You do whatever it takes. You're patient. You're long-suffering. This can be individually, as a group, or as a church. And listen, this is God's gift to us. I really need you to understand this morning that discipline isn't about punishment when it comes to our salvation. It's a gift. It's a blessing that God gives to us. Because sin is deceitful and the problem with most sin is that we can't see it. I've had countless conversations where in following this model, I'll, I'll go to the person in division and I'll say, hey, do you realize that what you said was offensive? And they're like, no, what, what I said wasn't offensive. What do you mean? They, they don't even see it. Because sin has blinded them to it. 
And it's a blessing that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can come alongside one another and say, listen, this is what you did to me. You're probably doing it to others, but this is what you did to me. And let's address it. Let me, let me help you see it. Not to belittle you, not to put you down, but so that you'll be restored. So that I will win my brother back. And see, that promotes u- unity. That promotes peace in the body. When you do that, you're not someone who's causing divisions. And as we do that, we're drawing people to God's marvelous love for us. We're helping them see the grace that is working in their life and in our life. Because we're not coming to them and confronting them or confronting their sin towards us in an angry way. I want you to understand, if you're doing this from an angry heart, You and God need to deal with that anger. First, get the log out of your own eye. But then, when you're free from that, then go and talk to your brother. You're you're doing it in a way of grace, in a a way that I, I want better for you. I want your life to be better. And you're showing God's grace and his mercy to them in a very real and tangible way. And maybe even keeping them from wandering away from the Lord farther. And again, with some of the people in your small group, maybe even keep them from wandering away from their marriages. So that 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 marriage might be rescued from divorce before it even gets to that point. And man, how many children would be spared? The, the pain and agony of being torn apart and having to pick one parent or the other. By God's grace, we could detour someone from walking down a road of destructive sin and win our brothers and sisters back. And most of all, we're honoring God by showing respect for his holiness, which is something that he graciously extends to us as a church. And all this is possible if we just take God's word and we believe it when it says, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father. The son delights in him. Next time you're faced with a challenge of disciplining someone, maybe it's your child or a subordinate, I want to challenge you this morning to discipline the way God disciplines. Discipline out of love for the person and not out of selfish reasons or retribution. Because you want to see the subordinate or the child or the friend being restored. This is what God is calling us to when he he calls us to discipline. It's an act of love. An act of mercy. An act of grace. And this morning I know some of you have experienced what was called discipline. And maybe for the first time you're realizing that that wasn't discipline as much as it was selfish people trying to have their way and trying to justify it and use scripture to force it upon you. But they were really just acting, but they weren't really acting the way God acts. And the challenge for you this morning is will you forgive those people? To forgive is something that we can do apart from the other person. We we don't need them to come and say, hey, I was wrong. We can choose this morning to forgive. And maybe that's been your life growing up, the relationship you had with your family, and maybe you've been hanging on to anger and bitterness for all this time. 
Would you let it go this morning? Stop being like the parable of the unforgiving servant who goes around punishing everyone for their, everyone else, even though they've been forgiven of so much. Will you do that this morning? Would you just, would you let it go? Give it to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your discipline in our lives. Thank you for how you discipline those that you love. And I know for many of us that's convoluted with the idea of punishment, God, but I hope over these last two weeks we, we begin to see a glimpse of what, what your love for us looks like and what, what biblical discipline, whether it's formative or corrective, looks like, God. And Lord, may we, may we be examples of that in our families, in our workplaces, and with our friends and our church. So that we might be the witness of unity that you have called us to be. Rather than a debate club. Trying to convince everybody else that they're wrong. Father, humble us this morning. Help us to see where we have used discipline in the wrong way. Convict our hearts, Lord, so that we might not leave here depressed, but so that we might confess and repent and leave here rejoicing. Remembering why we need a Savior this morning. And God, that that, would fuel, that, that forgiveness would fuel us to forgive others in our lives. And that we would be known as people of peace. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' precious name.